Welcome, welcome, listeners, to another spooktacular episode of Boss Science. As always, I'm your ghostest with the mostest, the fantastic Grace Ingalls, bringing you a very special soundbite episode on this night of All Hallows' Eve. But before I spook you all with some wicked smart science, I want to take a minute to thank all of you listeners out there for supporting the show. Whether it's sharing the podcast with a friend, following the show on social media, or leaving those awesome ratings and reviews, it's all amazing and I thank you. If you haven't done so already, it would mean the world to me if you can just take a few minutes, literally just 60 seconds, I swear that's all you need, to rate and review the show on iTunes. And while you're there, click the subscribe button too. If you do, maybe I'll give you a special shout-out for your lovely words on the next episode. Ooh, right? Seriously, though, every single review helps the show grow, and all I want to do is share my wacky and weird wonderings with the rest of the world. So thank you in advance for your help. Okay, back to today's soundbite. If you don't know, soundbite episodes are a short feature presentation on one specific topic in science, and I research all the amazing things scientists in Boston are doing to understand and advance that field. In honor of my favorite childhood holiday, today's episode is inspired by, if you couldn't have guessed it, Halloween! Lots of spooky things come to mind when you think about Halloween. Vampires, ghosts, werewolves, witches, and for me, who lived spitting distance from a cemetery for most of my life, zombies. And what are zombies all about? That's right, today's soundbite, we are getting down with the zombies and talking all about the brain. What is the brain? How does it work? What do we know about it? What still mystifies us? And what are Boston scientists doing to figure it out? There's lots to cover, so let's crack into it, shall we? All right, the brain, also known as your noodle, your noggin, your good old thinking cap. It is, for all intents and purposes, a super-powered, high-speed biological computer. It receives information and senses from your body, processes said information, and sends messages back to the body on how to behave. On average, the human brain is about the size of two clenched fists side by side. Which, hold on, is it just me, or does that seem really small? Like, too small? Did the internet lie to me? No, it wouldn't do that. But just in case it did, I decided to look up some pictures of a person holding a real human brain, and immediately regretted it. But after consulting some very graphic medical photos, I can confirm that the brain really is that small. So I guess it's true. Size doesn't really matter, huh? The brain weighs about 3.3 pounds, or 1.5 kilograms, or one box of wine, just in case you need a reference. And from the outside, it looks kind of like a big walnut, with folds and crevices, but it has the consistency somewhat like jello. Which is just, again, ew. 
If you were to look at the structure of the brain, you'd see that it's made up of two halves, known as the right and the left hemispheres. Kind of like, again, a walnut. What is with the food analogies? Maybe I'm hungry. So the two hemispheres of the brain are connected by a thick bundle of nerve fibers called the corpus callosum, which allows the hemispheres to communicate with each other. Each hemisphere of your brain contains four sections, known as lobes in the science world, and each of these lobes are responsible for a different function. There's the occipital lobe, which is where all the major visual processing happens. So, taking the visual info from our eyes and processing it to understand depth, distance, and object identification. Good stuff right there. The parietal lobe and the temporal lobe are both involved in processing sensory information, but each a different kind. The parietal lobe deals with information related to touch, taste, temperature, and pain, while the temporal lobe deals with processing auditory information, hearing and recognizing languages, as well as taking all the sensory information we receive from the parietal lobe and integrating it into our memories. Super important stuff there. Now, the frontal lobe is where all of our quote-unquote higher executive functions are processed. So things like controlling emotions, making long-term plans, problem solving, as well as reason and risk assessment. It also happens to be the last part of your brain to fully develop, not until you're 25. That's why teenagers are always making such stupid decisions. They just don't have the brain capacity yet. The rest of you adults, though, come on, get it together. You got no excuse. So, despite having clearly defined lobes in the brain, with each lobe being responsible for a highly specific function, the wild thing is that there's actually no difference between the lobes when it comes to what it's made of. It's all just highly organized brain tissue, nothing more. The tissue of the brain is made up of two types of cells, nerve cells, known as neurons, and supporting cells, known as glial cells. In fact, the brain has quite a lot of these cells about a hundred billion nerve cells and about a trillion supporting cells. Although there are way more glial cells in the brain, it's actually the neurons that are the star players. Why is this, you ask? Great question. So the most important difference between neurons and glial cells is that neurons are excitable, meaning that they are able to produce electrical activity called action potentials or nerve impulses or spikes, depending on who you ask. Why scientists can never just stick to one term, I don't know. These action potentials are what makes the brain, well, the brain. They allow neurons to communicate with each other, process information, create memories, interact with the world, everything. So how do neurons do this? Magic? I mean, honestly, there's got to be some kind of witchcraft involved, because the whole process is wild. The magic of action potentials is all due to the structure of the neuron. I'm sure you guys have all seen what a neuron looks like before. It's kind of like if an alien tried to draw a tree from a description, but had never actually seen one in real life before. So close, yet so far. Take a look at the show's Instagram to see what I mean. So a neuron is made up of three basic parts, a cell body, an axon, and a dendrite. Yikes, lots of new vocab, I know. So, let's go back to our tree analogy for simplicity's sake. The cell body would be the trunk of the tree, and this is where the nucleus is stored, which controls all of the neuron's activities and stores the cell's genetic material. 
At one end of the cell body is the axon, the tree roots. And this part of the neuron is responsible for transmitting messages to other neurons. At the opposite end of the cell body are the dendrites, which look actually pretty spot on compared to a tree's branches. And these are responsible for receiving messages from other neurons. So how does a neuron send message? Do they text? Snapchat? Does one neuron slide into another neuron's DMs? Well, all this goes back to our talk on action potentials. When a neuron creates an action potential, this spike causes the axon terminals to release a whole mess of chemicals called neurotransmitters. These neurotransmitters will then cross a tiny distance, called a synapse, to reach the dendrites of another neuron. This neuron will then absorb the neurotransmitters through its dendrites, and, if there's enough neurotransmitters absorbed, it will cause the neuron to spike, which will then send its own transmitters to other neurons, and those neurons will spike, and on and on it goes. Pretty cool, right? But get this, because each neuron has a shitload of dendrite branches, the neuron is able to create synapses with hundreds of other neurons. That means when one neuron spikes and releases transmitters, they aren't just going to one neuron, but to hundreds of neurons. And with a hundred billion neurons in the brain, you can start to understand how complex our neural communication system can be. Absolutely bananas. Now, scientists know a lot about the brain, as you can probably guess based on the 10 minutes of word vomit that I just gave you about it. But there's still so much more that we don't understand. In fact, there's so much that we don't understand about the brain that we have a whole field dedicated just to understanding the nervous system and the brain, known as neuroscience. One of the main goals for researchers in the field of neuroscience is to continue to understand the biological basis of learning, memory, behavior, perception, and consciousness. So, as you can imagine, there are a lot of Boston scientists who are working on these very things. One group of scientists at Boston University are studying how memories are recalled in the brain, and they're taking it a step further to try and enhance or suppress the emotions that come with it. Neuroscientist Steve Ramirez believes that the hippocampus, a super small cashew-shaped section of the brain that stores the sensory and emotional information of a memory, can be manipulated to affect the emotional recall of memories. Now, scientists already know that when memories are formed, all the sensory and emotional information pertaining to that memory is stored in a unique combination of neurons. Basically like a QR code, but for your brain. The hippocampus is the section of the brain responsible for storing all the information of memories, both good and bad. Using optogenetics, a super fascinating but complex technique that allows researchers to use a combination of light and genetic engineering to control the behavior of neurons, Ramirez and his team have mapped out which parts of the hippocampus are activated when a mouse makes a good, bad, or neutral experience. After mapping out which cells were part of the memory-making process, the researchers are then able to use laser light to artificially trigger these cells and activate that memory. Imagine having a tunable laser for memory recall. You would never have to study for a test again. Now comes the fun part, manipulating the memories. When the scientists activated the top part of the hippocampus, they found that they were able to diminish the trauma of reliving bad memories. On the flip side, they were also able to show that activating the bottom part of the hippocampus drastically increased the trauma experienced and caused long-term fear as well as anxiety behavioral changes. 
In mice, I should add. Don't worry, they aren't traumatizing humans for the sake of science. I hope. But you can imagine that for people who have PTSD, depression, or anxiety, certain memories can trigger an overflow of emotions. These overwhelming emotions of fear or pain can be so debilitating for a person who's reliving a traumatic memory. It can affect every aspect of their life. Now that we know what part of the brain is causing the negative emotions during memory recall, what if scientists were able to suppress those neurons from overactuating in the bottom part of the hippocampus? In theory, this could be a huge first step towards a new treatment for PTSD or anxiety. I mean, we're a long way from doing anything like this in humans, but the proof is there. Another fascinating area of neuroscience research is the study of dreams. Whether you believe that dreams are a prophecy for the future, a window into the soul, or just a bunch of random electrical signals that mean nothing, can't deny that dreams are fascinating. While many scientists are looking to understand why we dream, the Media Lab Fluid Interface Group at MIT has taken a different approach to dream research. This lab hopes to use a novel method known as Targeted Dream Incubation, or TDI for short, as a method for recording and even controlling a person's dreams. How does it work? Well, it's based on the concept of our brain's sleep cycle. Your brain will cycle through a number of different stages as you sleep, each stage producing different brain waves, heart rates, and breathing patterns. I won't go into the details of each stage too much, although it is fascinating. But the two basic types of sleep you'll pass through are rapid eye movement, or REM, and non-REM sleep. As I'm sure many of you know, REM sleep is where almost all of your dreaming occurs, and it's super important for memory consolidation and neural pair. So don't skimp on your sleep, guys. Unless you want to stay up late listening to Boss Science. That's totally fine. Previous studies have showed that hypnagogia, which is the earliest stage of sleep in a person's dream cycle, is very similar to REM brainwaves. But one of the main differences is, unlike REM, people can still hear audio during hypnagogia while they dream. So, using this new TDI method, the MIT team came up with a new sleep tracking device that can actually alter dreams by first tracking when hypnagogia occurs, and then delivering audio cues to help guide the direction of the dream. They call this device Dormio, which is honestly just adorable. I want my own little Dormio too. In 2018, Dormio was used in a pilot study with six people, and the results showed that they can use TDI to guide the contents of a person's dream. And the most bonkers thing is, they were actually able to improve a person's creative ability once they were awake. This had everybody in the neurosleep world absolutely shook. So much so that it inspired the first ever dream engineering workshop, where a bunch of the world's leading dream researchers came together and brainstormed new tech for studying, recording, and influencing dreams. Just in the past year, the dream study was repeated, but with 50 subjects this time, and the results further proved how dream incubation can improve a person's creativity. To help other scientists explore dream incubation, Dormio now has a new iOS app platform that can be used to share the TDI method. In already other universities like Duke, BU, Harvard, University of Rochester, and Chicago have started using Dormio in their own studies. 
Eventually, Dormio and other technologies like it could help to improve research on how dreams impact our emotions, our behavior, and our memories. Who would have thought that so much could change while you're drooling on your pillow? Not me. All this research is so crazy to me. I just, I can't wait to see what scientists have learned about the brain in 10 years or 50 years time. But researching the brain is not a very easy task. One way that scientists can study the behavior of neurons is to grow them in a petri dish and then flood them with drugs or zap them with probes and basically watch and see what they do. But unfortunately, many times neurons in 2D environments, like in these petri dishes, don't do a good job at replicating the complex behaviors that neurons display in 3D environments, like our actual brain. One reason for this is that neurons in the brain are actually arranged and segregated into two different regions, known as gray and white matter. Gray matter contains the neurons' cell bodies, while the white matter contains the axons and dendrites that neurons use to receive and transmit signals. Because things like brain injury or disease can affect these areas differently, we need a better way of modeling the compartmentalization of gray and white matter. In an attempt to replicate the neural behavior that we see in the brain, tissue engineers have tried growing neurons in 3D gel-like environments. But unfortunately, the neurons never really live that long in these environments, and they never really show robust tissue-level function anyway. Luckily, scientists in the Kaplan Lab at Tufts University have been working to improve 3D modeling of the brain, and they've now been successfully able to create functional 3D brain-like tissue with both gray and white matter-specific regions. What's even cooler? They've shown that the neurons grown in their 3D environments are able to survive for two months in the lab, which, compared to the 24 hours normally neurons live in 2D conditions, is a hella improvement. What's their secret to keeping their neurons alive and thriving? It all comes from the lab's novel structural design, which incorporates two different types of biomaterials with different properties. One part is composed of a soft collagen gel, which probably means their skincare routines on fleek. The other part is a sponge-like scaffold made from, get this, silk. These neurons are more pampered than I am. Won't lie, I'm a bit jealous. So why does this dual material structure matter? It turns out that when neurons are grown in these different environments, they actually develop in different ways. The spongy silk scaffold provides an anchor for the neurons to attach to, while the gel is perfect for axon growth. This dual biomaterial is also what gives the 3D environment its oh-so-important gray and white matter compartmentalization. The researchers take their spongy silk scaffold, hole-punch it to make it donut-shaped, fill the donut with rat neurons, which sounds like the grossest donut filling ever, and then add collagen gel to the middle of the silk donut. In literally just days, they're able to see neurons forming a network through the pores of the scaffold in already distinctive gray and white matter regions. Compared to 2D neurons grown in a petri dish, these 3D neurons have a higher expression of genes involved in neural growth, form more robust neural connections, and even display electrical activity that mimics signals seen in the live brain. Guys, they are literally growing brains in their lab. That's bonkers. These 3D brain models are so important too, because it gives scientists the opportunity to study how neurons behave after things like traumatic brain injury and brain disease. And they're even able to screen drugs and methods that could one day be used as a new treatment to save lives. I'm sure some of you might be thinking, 
But Grace, there is no way that this 3D neuron donut can act like a real brain. What about all those different lobes you talked about earlier? Wouldn't that be important to model as well? Oh my god, listener, you are so damn smart. And yes, that's completely true. The brain is so much more than just individual neurons. It's a complex network that varies from section to section, both on cellular composition as well as function. How does somebody model that in the lab? Let's ask scientists at the Disease Biophysics Group at Harvard University, who are working on creating a so-called brain on a chip. Now, this is some crazy shit right here. These researchers, as well as collaborators working at the Wiest Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering, have created an in vitro modeling of organs that they've coined organ on a chip, or organ chips for short. These organ chips are microfluidic devices that can recreate the microarchitecture and functions of living organs. They look nothing like I imagined either. Each of these chips is about the size of a memory stick and is made up of two squares of clear flexible polymer. Kind of like those silicon molds people use to make cute ice cube shapes, but instead of ice cubes, it's organs. On the surface of each polymer square is a hollow microfluidic channel, about 100 micrometers in size, so about the width of an average strain of hair. These microfluidic channels, which is a fancy term for a really small channel that liquid can go through, are lined with human cells. One channel is lined with organ-specific cells, the other channel is lined with vascular cells, the cells that make up your blood vessels. Each of the polymer square's microchannels directly mirror the layout of the partner polymer square. So, when the two squares are squished together like a sandwich, the microfluidic channels line up and make a hollow tube. So now researchers have a system that they can use to compare the movement of liquid across all different types of organ cells. In this case, brain cells. The researchers have taken it a step further, though, and have designed their organ chips to actually connect to each other, so they can study how the changes from one organ chip can affect another organ chip. To demonstrate this principle, the research team has created organ chips that model three specific sections of the brain. The amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. When the scientists characterized the cellular composition, protein expression, metabolism, and electrical activity of the neurons from each regional specific brain chip, they found that there are huge differences between each region. After establishing the difference between each of the brain chips, the next step was to connect them. They did this by adding additional pathways that allowed the neurons to make connections across the different chips. Compared to the separated brain chips, the researchers found that when they were connected, the cellular composition and electrophysiology of the neurons completely changed. This is a huge step forward when it comes to modeling of the brain, because now scientists have a way to study how a drug impacts not only different individual regions of the brain, but the downstream effects these drugs have on connected regions of the brain. In the future, the team hopes to use these interconnected brain chips to study and develop therapies for a huge range of neurological and psychiatric diseases. I absolutely love it. Although, I won't lie, I kind of was hoping someone was working on growing, like, miniature fun-sized brains to study in the lab. If anyone knows something like that, hit me up, because I need to know. So, as you guys can see, there's some really amazing work being done in Boston to better understand how the brain works and to model its behavior. 
But what's the good of all this research if it can't be used to come up with actual treatments? Don't worry, though. Plenty of people are working on that, too. One group, for example, is the SHU Lab at Tufts University. This group has come up with a really amazing way of tackling one of the biggest challenges in neuroscience, the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier, or the triple B as I like to call it, is the highly organized, super tight layer of glial cells that surround all the blood vessels in the brain, and it controls the movement of particles in and out of the brain. The triple B is semi-permeable, meaning it allows some materials to cross, like oxygen and nutrients and good stuff like that, while blocking other materials from entering. It's kind of like a really strict airport security, where they make you toss out your super expensive bottle of face moisturizer just because it's one ounce over the limit, and you spend 10 minutes bitching back and forth with the security officer before finally accepting defeat and throwing it out. Definitely not based on true events at all. <clears throat> Logan. The blood-brain barrier is super important, though, because it stops all kinds of deadly pathogens and toxins from getting to your brain, which, if you think about it, is probably the most important organ you have. So definitely want to keep it safe. But unfortunately, the blood-brain barrier is sometimes too good at its job, and it blocks a lot of the drugs and chemicals that scientists have developed to treat brain disease from entering the brain. And what good is a treatment for brain disease if it can't get to the brain? There's been a few different approaches to try and get drugs across the blood-brain barrier, but the only approach that's worked so far is to first deliver drugs to the brain that purposefully disrupt the blood-brain barrier, making it leaky which then allows the actual drug to pass and enter to the brain. As you might have guessed, this is real risky, because if you make it easier for your drug to get through to the brain, that means lots of other things can get in too, which can lead to infection, tissue damage, and neurotoxicity. But these techniques might soon be a thing in the past, because the SHU lab has designed lipid-based nanoparticles that incorporate neurotransmitters to help carry drugs across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain. Remember neurotransmitters? Those chemical messengers I mentioned earlier that neurons use to communicate? Well, they also have the advantage of having a built-in chemical passport needed to pass the blood-brain barrier with ease, as the brain periodically releases neurotransmitters into the bloodstream to signal other parts of the body. The researchers at the SHU lab have been able to chemically modify these neurotransmitters so that a lipid nanoparticle can be attached. These lipid nanoparticles are basically tiny bubbles that can easily encapsulate all different types of molecules, such as therapeutic drugs. This lipid nanoparticle and neurotransmitter construct, which the team has termed neurotransmitter lipidoid, can be injected into the bloodstream, carry the drugs to the blood-brain barrier, then, the neurotransmitters use its VIP pass to carry the lipid nanoparticle across the barrier, where it can then fuse with neurons in the brain and deliver its drug cargo. Ingenious, right? Using these neurotransmitter lipidoids, the researchers were successfully able to deliver three different types of cargo into the brain of mice. A small antifungal drug, a large macromolecule that can inhibit production of proteins connected to Alzheimer's disease, and a gene-editing protein called GFP-CRE. This is a huge step for treating neurological diseases and disorders, as these neurotransmitter lipidoids provide a safe and tunable platform 
for packing drugs of all different types to enter the brain. Now, I'm all about getting drugs to the brain. Wow, that sounded bad. I didn't mean it that way. Mom, Dad, let's be clear. I don't do drugs. But when it comes to the treatment for brain disorders, it's fantastic that so many researchers are working on finding new drug treatments or methods to get those treatments into the brain. But what other options are out there? Well, aside from drugs, scientists have worked with implanted electrodes to try and treat brain disorders. Since the way that the brain communicates is through electrical activity, it makes sense to try and use electrical implants to control or alter neural activity. Although there has been some success with using electronics for brain treatments, go look up deep brain stimulation on Google to learn more. And keep that safe search button on unless you want to be scarred for life. But currently, the implants used for treatments are made of really rigid materials. So after it's been implanted in the brain for a while, the brain's immune system says, hey, hold on a second. You don't have the lovely jello-like consistency as the rest of the brain. You don't belong here, intruder, intruder. After which, the immune system creates a sort of coating around the implant to block it off in the rest of the brain which can obviously diminish the effectiveness of the implant. This is called the foreign body response, and man is it a bitch to deal with if you're trying to implant stuff in the body. However, researchers at the Lieber Lab at Harvard Medical School are working on developing flexible tissue-like electronics that can be implanted into the brain without triggering the foreign body response. These mesh electronics, as they call it, are able to mimic the size, shape, and feel of real neurons. Unlike stiff electronics, these mesh electronics are able to move with the brain tissue, allowing them to record, track, and modulate individual neurons or circuits for up to a year or more. Not only do they avoid the brain's foreign body response, but they have the added bonus of encouraging neural migration, which is the movement and growth of neurons which could help guide neurons to damage areas, such as pockets created by a stroke. Once this technology is further developed, it can be used for all sorts of things. Creating a more precise map of our brain's communication system, treating neurological disease, and even acting as a neural substitute by replacing damaged neurons and completing the impaired neural pathway. Now, if this doesn't sound like we're living in a sci-fi movie, then you're bonkers, because this stuff is wild. I mean it. A real-life Terminator is in our future. I know it. So there you have it, folks. You've now learned everything there is to know about the brain and neuroscience research, all within 30 minutes. God, I'm good. No, no, I know. There's lots of amazing stuff going on out there in the world of neuroscience, and this episode only scratched the surface of what there is to learn. But I can't cover it all. You can take a look in the show notes for links to the articles I discussed in today's episode so you can learn even more. If you're a neuroscientist researcher in Boston and you've got some boss-ass science you want to tell me about, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. Even if you're not a wicked awesome neuroscientist researcher, you can still email me too. Don't worry. I'm here for you all. To check out the show on social media, I'm at bosscience on Instagram and Twitter. And now on Facebook, too, at Boss Science Podcast. So exciting! 
These are the places that I tell you guys about chances to submit listener questions for the show, as well as upcoming episode releases, like next month's interview with BU professor Tyrone Porter, who is doing some wild work to change how we view ultrasound and how it can be used to tackle a whole range of diseases in ways I never even dreamed of. Trust me, it's a fantastic interview. You're not going to want to miss it. If you don't want to miss any episode moving forward, make sure to follow the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbeans, wherever. And while you're there, maybe think about dropping one of those ratings and reviews that I talked about before. Just a thought. And since you stuck around all the way through the BS end credits, I'll give you a little treat and share a fun Halloween fact before I go. As you know, today's episode was inspired by zombies because they're always hungry for brains. But actually, if you think about it, in pretty much every movie or TV show featuring the undead, zombies don't actually seek out brains. They'll take any human flesh they can get. So why do we keep saying brains when we talk about zombies? It actually comes from just one source, a 1985 cult film called The Return of the Living Dead. It's about a pair of workers at a medical supply warehouse who unwittingly release a deadly green gas that brings the dead back to life. And with the cemetery right across the street, you can see how this would lead to trouble. The zombies in this movie are quite vocal about their hunger for human brains, which is where we get the iconic brains quote from. And although the movie was kind of a flop, that tagline lived on. And despite zombies never being betrayed that way again, they will forever be, in our minds, hungry for brains. So, now that I've spoiled the theme of my episode, I'll leave you all to enjoy your spooky night. Go eat a buttload of candy, carve some pumpkins, watch a scary movie, make a blood sacrifice to summon a dark spirit. Wait, what? Maybe just stick to the movie. I'll see you guys on the next episode of Boss Science where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye!